Let us start by praying this morning for the preaching of the Word. Heavenly Father, as we approach Your throne and we approach this time of worship through the preaching of the Word, we pray that it would be effectual to our hearts. We pray that we would be softened, that we would listen with ears and our eyes would see what You would have us know. Uh, Father, help us to be people who seek to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Father, we pray uh, all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. So you've had a rough day, a long, hard, difficult day, maybe filled with conflict, maybe with disappointment, with sorrow, and you say, you know, I need to get into the God's Word. And So we've been preaching through Joshua. I'm going to open up the book of Joshua. I'm going to turn to chapter 12, where we're going to be. And you read this. The Israelites struck down the following kings of the land and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan to the east from the Arnon River to Mount Hermon, including all the Arabah eastward. King Sihon of the Amorites lived in Heshbon. He ruled from Aror on the rim of the Arnon River along the middle of the Rip Valley and, the half, and half of Gilead up to the Jabbok River the border of the Amorites, Ammonites. The Arabah, east of the Sea of Chinnereth, to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, eastward through Beth Jeshimoth, and southward along the slopes of Pisgah. Verse 4. King Og of Bashan, of the remnant of the Rephraim, lived in Ashtaroth and Edri. He ruled over, the, over Mount Hermon, Salak, all Bashan up to Geshurite and Mekethite border, and half of Gilead to the border of King Sihon of Heshbon. Moses, the Lord's servant, and the Israelites struck them down, and Moses, the Lord's servant, gave their land as an inheritance to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half tribe of Manasseh. Verse 7 Joshua and the Israelites struck down the following kings of the land beyond the Jordan to the west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which ascends towards Seir. Joshua gave their lands as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their allotments. The hill country of the Judean foothills, the Arabah, the Slopes, the wilderness, and the Negev, the lands of the Hithites, or Hethites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, or Canaanites the Perizzites, the, Hev, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9, the king of Jericho. One, the king of Ai, which is next to Bethel. One, the king of Jerusalem. One, the king of Hebron. One, the king of Jarmuth. One, the king of Lachish. One, the king of Eglon. One, the king of Gezer. One, the king of Debir. One, the king of Geder. One, the king of Hormah. One. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adalam, one. The king of Mekda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tupa, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. The king of Akshath, one, the king of Tanakh, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, 
one. The king of Jokneam in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphdor, or Naphthor, one. The king of Goyim in Gilgal, one. The king of Teraz, one. The total number of all kings, 31. Two things are going through your mind right now after that long, hard day where you've turned to this book in Joshua to find encouragement and comfort. Number one is maybe I need to read somewhere else. Maybe God's word is not sufficient for my trials today in this passage. Or two, you could just be like, well, that wasn't helpful. I, I'm going to turn on the TV now and watch something mind-numbing. So what do we do with these passages? Right? What do we do with these passages that just list out a bunch of dead kings? Now, maybe some passages provide more devotional warmth than others, and that's true, but we shouldn't write off this passage. And, and part of the reason why I insist on preaching through books of the Bible like this, including all these names, is because I believe that God's Word is powerful, effective, and all of it, the whole council, has something to say to us. And I believe that the, the history of the church would show that that all of God's Word is useful. So, the question we must ask ourselves is how in the world is this useful? What do we do with this? This passage really does show us something, though. It shows us that God is faithful and that we must rejoice. These recounting of battlefield victories might not mean much to someone who was never there, and that happened 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. But I bet if you talk to a veteran and mention some of the battles that he fought in, there would be some emotional response, wouldn't there? If you mention the, the, the name Normandy, you're not thinking about a, a comfortable beachside property. You're thinking about a battle. You think about the uh, Tet Offensive. Many men have fought and died in the Tet Offensive and lost friends. You think about Baghdad or Bakuba or Sangin, those names don't mean much to you, but they mean a lot to my buddies who fought and lost friends there. And so when you read the names in the Old Testament, it's, it's going to give us a sense of chills, maybe, in some, in some areas. Now I'm going to tell you, think about the national anthem. Have you ever had chills about the Canadian national anthem? Most of us have never felt chills listening to the Canadian national anthem. But I don't know about you, but I feel chills when I hear the American national, the U.S. national anthem. And there's a reason. It's because I associate it with something, with something greater than what it is. And so these names are indicators of something greater. And when we read this, we see that the people of Israel, it's, a, it's sort of like a national anthem for them about God's faithfulness throughout the years. And they hear this and they must rejoice. And we'll also talk a little bit about how Jesus would read these names and have some recognition of them as well. And so you may say, okay, pastor, I get it. These are important to the people of Israel. But what does that have to do with me living in Sierra Vista and my hard day? Well, we as new covenant people must also see how God is faithful. And just because we see a list of names here and God is faithful to Israel doesn't mean that God is not going to be faithful to His new covenant people, the church. 
And so we see that God is faithful, and so we also have to rejoice. And the first part we see is 1 through 6. It's broken down um, into east of the Jordan, territory east of the Jordan. So if you're looking at a map, does everybody know where east is when you look at a map? Right? Never eat soggy wheat. Right? And so you see, never eat soggy wheat. So if you're east of the Jordan, if you're east of the Jordan, you're on the right-hand side. And that's when we look at Israel today, we don't see that as, as much. And so what's happening here is the writer, the author, Joshua, is going back and pointing to some of the victories that happened under the time of Moses. So when Moses was leading the people of Israel, and so we see in verse 1, the Israelites struck down the following kings of the land, took possession of their land beyond the Jordan to the east and from the Arnon River out to Mount Hermon, including all the Arabah eastward. You could read about the stories, the battles in the book of Numbers. And there was some conflict over what happened. And so if you were an Israelite and you heard this, you would recognize that there was a battle, not really a, a physical battle, but more of an a, a exchange of words that happened before Israel crossed over. Two tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh decided that they wanted to stay on the east. They didn't want to go and cross over to the west. The east side looked nice, and they wanted to stay there. Well, the rest of the tribes of Israel said, you're going to abandon us. If we go over by ourselves, you're going to stay over here and be safe while we're fighting to take over the land. And so they made a commitment. They made a covenant. They said, we will go with you and fight for this land. And so what the author here is doing is he is recognizing that there was a, there was a need for a unified people for the conquest of the land. And so we have this unified people. And... The, the Israelites that stayed or settled the east side were worried that they would be cut off from the rest of the people of Israel. And so by including it in this little bit of history, they are recognizing their connection. And in fact, if, if we continue through this book, later on we're going to see that another conflict arise, arises over worship. And they're worried that they're going to be um, cutting themselves off from the people of God through false worship. One thing I want to point out is uh, the people under Joshua are almost always given a positive report. Have you noticed that? The people under Joshua, this time in Israel's history, is probably the most positive report of Israel we'll ever hear. That they are faithful to the Lord, except for that one instance with Achan and the stealing of the, the spoils of war from Jericho. And so God has continually shown a favor to the Israelites under Joshua, and that's kind of important because they are sort of like the model generation uh, for the people of Israel. And so they are worried that they would not have that same national unity. Uh, verses 2 through 3 really sum up the uh, importance of a national unity, and you can read more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then in verse 6, we have this description of Moses, and I really think it stands out. It says, Moses, the Lord's servant... Haven't we talked about how Paul calls himself a slave of Christ? He has a single-mindedness. And so Moses, in the same way, is a servant of the Lord. And it, the Israelites struck them down, talking about their enemies. The, and Moses, the Lord's servant, gave their land as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were given land east of the Jordan under this Moses. And so what's interesting is Moses was a really big, popular figure. He was like the Abraham Lincoln or the George Washington 
of the people of Israel because he was so well-known and so famous. Well, this is showing continuity between them and, of course, Joshua's leadership. Joshua's leadership, Joshua coming in as the new guy at 80 years old, was, um, was interesting and unique because they were all following Moses. Now Joshua takes charge. And so there's a continuity and there's an emphasis on this, this national unity and obedience. And I think there's a good reminder for us in this. The first thing we should think is that fresh victories should not drown out remembering our past victories. How easy would it be for the people of Israel to ignore the past victories that they had under, under Moses? So Joshua has conquered all this land now. They could have easily forgotten what God did under Moses. But instead, there's a reminder. And we should not think that we're the only people in history to walk in faith. And I think we as Christians have a tendency to forget our history. There's a, a saying, chronological snobbery. Well, if I was back then, I would have done it differently, right? We have this, this superiority complex. And so we as Christians also recognize that we're not the only people who have walked the walk of faith. We're not the only ones who have studied the Word of God carefully and diligently. And so we have some mentors who have walked before us. We get to stand on the shoulders of giants, as some of the old theologians would describe it. And so there's really nothing new. And one of the things I want to caution us is that even though sometimes it's a joy to feel like we discovered something new, we should be careful and we should continue to seek after you know, knowing God and His Word. But I think much of our personal pride is tied up when we think we have discovered something no one else has. I think that sometimes we think that we are the only people in history to have discovered a new schema for, let's just say, um, the Old Testament story or the New Testament story. And we, we've discovered something new. The problem is, I think most of the time it's either ignorance, ignorance of what has come before us, or it's a, um, a neglect to really consider, maybe I'm not so, so novel after all. Um, and, and we should really focus on going back to the old paths in many ways, as, as the, the prophet mentions. So, how do we alleviate that? Well, I think some of that comes from having a good confession of faith, knowing a confession, um, not necessarily saying that it's infallible, but saying that this is a, a good summary of what we believe, and knowing our history. Knowing what other people have said about a particular passage provides great insight uh, for us, and I think it keeps us from being too prideful. Because if I said, let me tell you something really new I discovered, that this word here, servant, actually means that Moses is, is the Lord incarnate, you guys would say, okay, you're a heretic, right? Because you have now gone beyond what Scripture teaches. And so we have to be careful that we diligently look at the word, but also compare it to what has come before. So just my two cents on that. Have you ever had a child come to you with some new discovery? So my, my children are in the age of discovery. Everything is new to them. Did you know, Dad, that a, um, I don't know, the pyramids were built by the Egyptians, but they don't know exactly how they built them? Oh, son, tell me more about this new discovery that you've had, right? And, and it's, it's, it's cute in a child, but then when an adult comes and says, let me tell you something, we're doing church all wrong. You want to say, well, how did the church go before? Is this, is this a new discovery? And so we have to be careful. There's nothing new. 
And it's easy to forget that we are belong to more than just our little church. Um, it's easy to forget that we belong to a greater kingdom, isn't it? Now, we don't always agree with the people that came before. They maybe have made some decisions that are, are disagreeable to us. But it's easy to forget that this kingdom that we belong to as Christians is greater than just our church family. There are some ways that we as a local church need to recognize that. And, and so for, for the next few minutes, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I want to pray for two churches. I want to pray primarily for the church in Afghanistan today. And then I want to pray for Summit Baptist Church who's doing that uh, preaching conference as a recognition that it's not just our church that is seeking to spread the kingdom of God on this planet, um, but it's more than just us. And so let's go ahead and pray. Let's spend a few minutes in prayer. And I know this is a little awkward. We don't always do this corporate prayer, but uh, I'm going to lead us as we pray through um, the situation in Afghanistan for the local church. Uh, the, the church in Afghanistan was growing enormously. It was one of the fastest growing churches. And now people are getting um, stopped and their phones are getting looked at. If they have a Bible app on their phone, they are being killed. Um, pastors are being uh, killed and their children are being sold as, as slaves. And so we have um, a lot of horrific things happening. And so today is Sunday. They would have started meeting in their home churches probably last night about 11. And so I haven't heard any news about what that's looking like today, but I bet it's pretty horrific. And so if they are faithful to meet when we, are, um, when we don't want to come and meet because it's too cold or too hot in our sanctuary, it's a reminder to us that we're a part of a bigger kingdom. So let's pray. Father, as we think about the situation in Afghanistan, the horrific atrocities that are beginning to happen and the news that's coming from that land, we want to lift up the church. Christians who love Jesus more than their life. Father, we hear about the martyring of pastors. We hear about Christians who um, are being stopped and checked. And, and, and if they are known to be a Christian, they're receiving letters from the Taliban saying that they know where they live and that what they do. And Father, we, we know what a scary time that would be. But Father, we also hear so much boldness from the church in Afghanistan. We heard that they are going to continue to meet regardless of what the outside situation looks like. They are going to continue to be faithful. They are, um, they put us to shame in many ways, Father God. And so, Lord, I want to lift up that church. Lord, we know that you are sovereign. We know you are king. We know you are Lord of lords and that you cause nations to topple and you also bring nations in place. So, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing uh, immense persecution in this time of unsettled, um, behavior in Afghanistan. Lord, we, uh, our hearts go out to them. We are, we are brokenhearted over our um, insufficiencies and our, our weaknesses, but we are emboldened by their bravery and their, um, their willingness to serve you regardless of what it looks like. I think the, the word speaks, speaks properly that the world is not worthy of them. And we know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and we don't say that lightly. Father, that they follow a Jesus that lay down his own life for that of others. God, I pray that we too would be a people that are willing to lay down our lives for others, for our neighbors. God, be with us as we continue our time of worship. 
Lord, we just, we're at a loss sometimes to, about what to do when the world turns uh, evil, when we see the evil in the world. Father, we, um, we're heartbroken and we're hurting with our brothers. We're weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. So, Father, help us not to forget that we belong to something greater than just a small church here in Sierra Vista. Lord, I also would like to lift up Summit Baptist as they have launched their, um, their preaching um, conference. They are so excited because they finally have a building in which they can host an actual uh, group of, of pastors to preach. And so, Father, I pray for the preaching of the Word to go out and to change hearts and that people would be impacted in new and refreshing ways, that they would seek to be more like Christ through the preaching of the Word. And we know that you are faithful in that. Lord, I pray that you would bless Summit Baptist, that you would bring those who hunger and thirst to know more about Christ to that congregation, and that they would grow in the Word and in truth, and that they would be a, a faithful people and a faithful witness in that area. And all these things we can ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So I hope that we don't forget that we belong to a much bigger group of people. We're not just a small um, little outpost alone, but we belong to a group of like-minded churches, uh, not only in our community, but we should, historically, we've seen how association with other like-minded churches is so valuable. And so I pray that that will be something that you will think about this coming uh, week, is how can we help other churches in our community? What are some ways that Sierra Vista Baptist can connect with and um, be refreshing to other people who are struggling? And so this, this unified people should also lead us to rejoicing. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 24. Once again, we get this geographical overview, and there's really some literary echoes of, one, of, of verse 1 in chapter 12. And so if you read verse 1, it says, The Israelites struck down the following kings. In verse 7, it says, Joshua and the Israelites struck down the following kings of the land beyond the Jordan to the west. So now we're talking about the west. This is what we just finished reading about. This is what we've just been seeing, how God is sovereign and how God is leading the people of Israel to conquer. It's a, a reminder of continuity between Moses and Joshua. And we get a list in verse 8 of six peoples in six areas. It's kind of like a summary. It's been mentioned in great detail. We've studied it. Uh, in depth over the last couple weeks. And the land described has a great variety in it, right? We have deserts, we have um, kind of like oasises, we have a really a land flowing with milk and honey, if we wanted to, to put it that way. It's really a, a land to be desired. And so that's what we have a description of. This is the land that God has promised to the people of Israel through Abraham and through um and through this process, he has been giving it to them. So we see this, this land that's to be desired. And I really don't think we can help but be amazed. Be amazed at how God preserves his people. So God could have easily said, you know what? Figure it out. Take that land on your own. And what would have happened? The people of Israel probably would have tried. But if you think about it, what about the nations that are still in the land and around the land? How many times do we hear about all the nations around Israel that wanted to take over Israel but never took the time to do it? Israel was at a very weak and vulnerable point in its life, and God could have easily allowed it 
to be overrun, but he didn't. He prevented it. Think about Jesus as a boy reading through this passage. I mean, think about Jericho and Ai and Jerusalem and Bethel. Do those names sound familiar to a New Testament person? Yeah, he's heard of those cities before. In fact, he's probably walked past them on his way to Jerusalem every year to three years to go and worship at the temple. And so the people of Israel, including Jesus, would have been familiar with these cities, which kind of gives us a, um, a list. And we have a list of Jericho and Ai and Jerusalem and Hebron and Jarmuth and Lachish and Eglon and on and on and on. So why not just let these kings alone, right? These, these kings are dead. We should just let them be. Why would we bring it up again? Why would God, in his word that he preserved, include this list? But did you notice something? Where's the names of those kings? Anybody in your Bibles, go ahead and take a look. Do you see the names of the king of Jericho? Do you see the name of the king of Ai? Do you see the name of the king of Jerusalem or Hebron or Jarmuth? It's not about these kings. It's about God and his faithfulness in giving these cities. It's actually a focus on God's goodness in giving the victory. It's not about beating these poor guys up who lost their cities. It's about this is a city that God has delivered to the people of Israel. And we see that this is God's blessing in times of trials. I like how Spurgeon said that we are prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in the sand. I could just imagine someone by the beach, right, drawing so-and-so loves so-and-so, the wave comes and washes it up, and that's about as quick as their marriage has lasted, right? And we, we see that they've written their names in the sand, but it's washed away. And that's what we do with our blessings. How often do we keep a record like this of the blessings in our lives? How many of you have kept track of the good things that God has done? I mean, because we remember the bad things. My, my wife remembers when our apartment burned down, right? She remembers the fire. In fact, she could probably give you a list of everything we lost in the fire. But how often do we keep a list of our blessings? How often do you pray specifically about the good things that God has done? I think sometimes our prayers are, are cold or overly generalized. My, my son has got into the habit of praying, God, please help whoever is sick or hurt to heal, get healed. Right? And you're like, anyone? Everyone? You know, and, and he's like, yeah, I, I pray that God, and that's a good general prayer, but there's no specificity, right? There's no real serious thought in that prayer. And so most of us, I think, we kind of pray like we're, we're shooting off some buckshot. We just blow it out there and hope that we hit the duck. When in reality, we should be shooting it like a bullet. We should be specific in our prayers. And that's what I think this passage is partly teaching us. When we pray, and if we want to powerful, be powerful in our prayer, we need to be specific. How powerful is it to walk through the blessings of your life and thank God for each one of them? I mean, think about the people of Israel as they read through this. These are not odd names to them. This is not the Canadian national anthem to them. This is, I'm, I'm sorry, any Canadians listening, but... <laughs> This is a serious group of names of cities that they are familiar with, that they have experienced. And they walked by the ruins or the actual city that's replaced it. 
And so they count their blessings and they name them one by one. That sound familiar? You ever hear that song before? Count your many blessings. I'm not going to sing it. Name them one by one. And that's how we grow in our thankfulness and in our praise. In fact, we could even look at Psalm 105, Psalm 135, Psalm 136, and it gives thanks in detail. Right? There's not a general, just random faithfulness or thankfulness. You know, I've been really struggling this week with what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, I think many of you have gotten my email. And I wrote a little, little write-up about it, and I also did a little video devotional on one of the psalms that I think really applies to that situation. And it's really easy for veterans to be discouraged about what's going on in Afghanistan. They're like, what a waste, right? That's what, what, what I've been hearing a lot. 20 years, what a waste. All our lives lost, what a waste, what a waste, what a waste. And, and I think about that, and I say, you know what, it is true. It has been devastating, it is heartbreaking. But you know that there's been 20 years, 20 years where women had the ability to go and drive and vote and, and go to school, 20 years where there are people that are um, 28 years old who probably don't even barely remember what life was like before the Americans, 20 years of a taste of what freedom should look like, 20 years of blessings in their lives, even though it was difficult and it was, and it was bought by expensive blood, 20 years where these people did not have to have the Taliban with their thumb on their neck controlling every aspect of their lives. 20 years of freedom that was bought. So it's not a waste. It's just that we are engraving our trials in marble and we're writing the blessings in the sand. Um, in fact, we're even seeing some signs of people rebelling against Taliban rule. Uh, many of the women are grabbing guns and fighting against the Taliban. And we wouldn't have had that. 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so we see that there is some, some, some beauty in the ashes. So my question is, how do you rejoice in the faithfulness of God? Do you make a list of what God has done? And you know, you have an individual responsibility. You have an individual responsibility to declare that to your, uh, your children, to the people that come after you, to the next generation. How many of your children know how you came to know Jesus Christ? How many of your children know why you believe the Bible is the very Word of God? How many of your children know why you go to church on Sunday and you don't skip just because sports is on? How many of your children understand the blessings that God has given you? And so that's part of your responsibility is to point them to trust in the Lord. And then we as a church, we keep records. We have an annual report where we record what God has done. How many of you have taken that annual report and turned it into a prayer list where you pray blessings over what God has done in your congregation. The new people that have come to become members, the people who have been baptized, the people who are being discipled. How many of you do that? I think we're, we're really lacking in our praying department when it comes to blessing and thanking God for all that He has done. So as we close, I think we, can, we have a great cause to rejoice. Now, many of you may not feel like you are a rejoicing person, right? Many of you are, are more prone to grumpiness than to joy. Now, some of you might not even get chills when I say the word Golgotha. Many of you may not get chills when you hear the, the name Calvary. But we should, shouldn't we? Because that's our Declaration of Independence. That is our national anthem. When we see what Christ has done on the cross for us, we should recognize that our best friend died there. 
on that hill far, far away. We have this land of Israel that was prepared and set apart for, for salvation of the people, but also for Christ to do His business for us. And if God had not been faithful to give them these lands, these cities, we too would not be able to rejoice today. We wouldn't even be gathered in here today. And so we have this, this joy that should come. It should stir us up. It should stir us to count our blessings. The number one blessing is that Jesus, the perfect God-man, stood in our place in order for us to no longer have to live with the sting of death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We have victory in Jesus. We can, we can rejoice in that. And so I hope you found as much encouragement in this passage as I have. I know it's a little awkward to read through these names, but there's a reason that God included this in this passage, and we should not neglect to read it. And part of my conviction is that every part of the Word of God is important and valuable and, and can teach us and nourish us. And if that's my conviction, it would be me doing you a disservice to skip it. To say, well, there's a lot of names and we're just going to go on to the next part where there's a story. But that would be foolish. So we're going to turn to Psalm 136. I'm asking that everyone would turn there. And we are going to read through a psalm and give specific praise to our Lord together. So I've done two really odd, or actually three odd things in this sermon. Number one, I started with a praying instead of a cute story. Second, I've taken some time to spend specific time in prayer. And third, we are going to do a responsive reading. I know everyone loves this because we can all get off sync. So this Psalm 136 has a, a call and a response. The call is the first line. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. The response is, His faithful love endures forever. So that's your job. After every call, you say, His faithful love endures forever. And we're going to walk through this psalm saying that. And I hope you get chills like I do every time I, I read through this. All right, let's give it a try. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. He alone does great wonders. He made the heavens skillfully. He spread the land on the waters. He made the great lights. The sun to rule by day. The moon and stars to rule by night. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, he divided the Red Sea and led Israel through, but hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. 
He led His people in the wilderness. He struck down great kings. And slaughtered famous kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as an inheritance. An inheritance to Israel, his servant. He remembered us in our humiliation. And rescued us from our foes. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. Did you guys get chills? Because I did. His faithful love endures forever. Make that your battle cry this week. Make that your, your call this week. That His faithful love endures forever. As we begin to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness.